good day to be indigenous. Get up, stand up. They are going to become more brutal. Couldn't cut, didn't cut again. Because all the hippies were trying to be Indians anyway. They're going to become more repressive because it's a matter of dollars and their illusionary concepts of power. Hey, Victor. We must live in balance with the earth. And also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I am awake. Welcome to Native Roots Radio Presents I'm Awake, and I'm your host, Wakanja Hade. This portion of the show is supported by the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition. Ha-ho! Hey, Karki! Welcome all of our friends and relatives in all four directions. You are listening to Native Roots Radio Presents I'm Awake. We discuss local and national Native news and events here on Native Roots Radio. This is producer Haley, uh, a descendant of the Great Ho-Chunk Nation in Wisconsin and also the Winnebago Tribe in Nebraska. I want to quickly introduce um, our first guest here, which uh, she will have a couple segments for us, which we are always very grateful for. But just want to say happy Friday to all of you listening out there across the Twin Cities and across Turtle Island. It is a gloomy, gloomy day here in the Twin Cities, but uh, it's Friday. So how gloomy can we get? Um, I'm going to quickly introduce uh, Minnesota State Senator Mary Kunish. Mary is a descendant of the Standing Rock Sioux. So thank you so much, Mary, for these updates. Take it away. Aho, matake yape, ampetukinle shantewashte. Greetings, all my relatives. I greet you today with a warm handshake and a good heart. This is Senator Mary Kunish. I am a state senator here in Minnesota, a descendant of the Standing Rock Nation, and uh, just so happy to be able to celebrate and Uh, commemorate that this is Native American Heritage Month, and there is so much going on across our state. But I think it's really, first of all, so important that we recognize and remember and celebrate the really rich histories, the traditions, the heritage and the cultures, the ancestors of our American Indians, our Alaskan Natives and our Indigenous communities across the state and across the nation. Many of us uh, come to Minnesota from other states. My grandfather actually came from the Standing Rock Nation as a young man. He came with his mother and his siblings and they settled here in Minnesota in St. Paul. Some of his siblings ended up going back to the Standing Rock uh, Reservation, others to Chicago, and many other cities kind of spread out. But uh, very fortunate that my grandpa stayed here in St. Paul, uh, started his family with my mother and her siblings, and we were able to know him. Oh, I probably knew him for my first 14 years of life, where he really did instill in us the the pride and the love of our Native ancestry, of our Lakota ancestry. And I wish he was still around to see all the good work that we're we're doing to this day. But it's important to remember that um, these lands that we we walk on, that we live in, that we uh, raise our families on, these are the ancestral lands and the contemporary lands known as Minnesota. And we have a really vibrant, vibrant Native American communities across the nation. And, you know, there are often times where I go out to speak about the work that we're doing in the legislature or most importantly about the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives Office and the work we're doing around that. And one of my first questions to the groups that, I, that I'm speaking to, and oftentimes they're non-Native, Um, I'll ask them, you know, how many tribal nations, how many federally recognized tribal nations do we have in Minnesota? And unfortunately, 99.5% of the time, uh, nobody in the group can tell me exactly how many tribal nations we, we house, we home, we welcome here in Minnesota. And that's always really discouraging and a little bit heartbreaking. But here in Minnesota, we have 11 tribal nations 
that includes seven Anishinaabe, which are the Chippewa and Ojibwe reservations, and our four Dakota Sioux communities. Our uh, Anishinaabe reservations, for those that are listening and don't know, uh, we have the Grand Portage, Boys Fort, Red Lake, White Earth, Leech Lake, Fond du Lac, and Mille Lacs. And then our Dakota communities are the Shakopee Midwakadin, Prairie Island, uh, Lower Sioux, and Upper Sioux. So that might be uh, a new bit of facts that somebody who's listening is going to find out. I Again, really sad to, to have to explain that to people, but, you know, we're making big strides here in Minnesota around all of the work that we, we're trying to do uh, around uh, educating people around our Indigenous people. This year in the, at the state legislature, um, instead of uh, that Christopher Columbus Day, we reclaimed it as Indigenous Peoples Day and asked our schools to provide at least one hour of school programming in observance of the day. And that was, they could provide professional development or instruction to students on various topics of Indigenous culture, history, practices, contributions, and current issues that, issues that affect our Indigenous communities. But we weren't going to stop there because um, in the Minnesota legislature, we um, created American Indian culture and language programming so that our, our school districts can conduct American Indian education programs that also include culture and language classes for at least 5% of the, uh, wherever there are at least 5% of the students um, who are American Indian, or if there's a hundred or more. So that was a big change. We also created Indigenous Education for All, and we're uh, tasking the Education Commissioner to provide historically accurate, tribally endorsed, culturally relevant, and community-based, contemporary, and develop developmentally appropriate resources to support the implementation of Indigenous education for all. Some of our schools are already doing that, and they've been embraced not just by our Native community uh, students, uh, communities of students, but also many others. And so we really want them to embed Indigenous education for all of our students into our state academic standards and um, make sure that we are participating with the advice of our tribal nations as well as our education committee and um, the commissioner to, re to really review and revise those standards for development. So that's um, some of the exciting work that we're doing here in Minnesota. Unfortunately, we had to create legislation that prohibited American Indian school mascots wish those schools would have done that voluntarily. And also um, we codified in legislature the ability for our American Indian students to wear regalia or objects of cultural significance to their graduation ceremony. And again, it's really too sad when we have to legislate these things, but um, we were able to do it. And I think we'll um, see some really wonderful changes within our school districts as more and more of uh, those, those schools recognize the value of allowing our students, and I hate to say allowing, but incorporating those things into our um, curriculum and our school. I'm gonna take a little break here for a minute, but I should be back for another segment. We'll see you then. Ha-ho, right on, Mary. Really, really, really great, great words. Um, Please wish someone a happy Native American Heritage Month, especially if you're one of our allies. You know, it means so much to us as, as uh, Native people that others in the state of Minnesota and across our communities recognize our resilience, our culture, and our ways of life. And the fact that we're still here, you know, brave enough to teach the history that um, people have tried to erase uh, for so long. We know those preventing history from being taught um, intend to repeat it. Um, so... We've got another segment with uh, Mary coming up after this short break, but one thing I want to leave um, leave with you before we take this break is a quote that has always stuck with me. Um, 
If pain and trauma can be passed down through our generations, so can healing. So always remember that we can return to the good parts of our roots and write a new story telling it in our way. You are listening to Native Roots Radio Presents I'm Awake, and we'll be right back with Minnesota State Senator Mary Kunish. Stay with us. I've been driving in my Indian car To the pound of the wheels drumming in my brain My dash is dusty, my plates are expired Please, Mr. Officer, let me explain I got to make it to a powwow tonight I'll be singing 49 down by the riverside Looking for sugar, riding in my Indian car I heard sex trafficking happens a lot in Indian country. What is that? Here are some of the real reasons why sex trafficking happens in Indian country. Unequal gender roles that were forced on us by colonization. Communities don't have enough resources. Silence around domestic and sexual violence. Lack of attention and justice for missing and murdered indigenous people. There's a lot of behavior that keeps our communities out of balance. These are just a few true reasons why native communities are targeted by traffickers. When these acts of violence happen in our communities, it opens us all up for exploitation. Sponsored by the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition. Bonjour. Hello. My name is Wabin. I am an enrolled member of the White Earth Nation, descendant of the Navajo Nation, and co-chair of the Indigenous Employee Resource Group with the Minnesota Department of Transportation. MnDOT is hiring for a variety of positions from road maintenance to accounting and more. We offer great benefits. For more information or to set up a one-on-one resume and application assistance, visit mn.gov slash careers or you can text or call 612-257-2388. 612-257-2388. Be a vaccinative. As the fall season continues, new COVID-19 variants threaten the health of not just you, but our elders as well. These new variants might even evade previous vaccines. That's why it's important to stay up to date. The newly authorized vaccines target current variants effectively and are FDA approved for ages six months and older. But there is an important note. These are the first COVID vaccines to be commercialized, which means there may be costs associated with them. Speak with your health insurer about your coverage before scheduling an appointment to avoid a surprise bill. For those without health insurance, help is available. Ask your health clinic about options or visit vaccines.gov for free locations. Getting vaccinated protects you from severe disease. Don't put yourself or elders at risk. So be a vaccinative and protect our community. You can visit vaccines.gov for free vaccine locations. This message is brought to you in partnership with the Minnesota Department of Health. This portion of the show is brought to you by Native American Community Clinic on Franklin Avenue in Minneapolis, honoring health and tradition. Hi, I'm Jane Fonda, and you're listening to Native Roots Radio. And we're back to Native Ritz Radio Presents. I'm awake, and this is Robert Pilot. Hey, producer Haley, Sherry, with you right now. Uh, just want to give a big shout out to NAC, Native American Community Clinic out there. They do such really amazing work with uh, within our Native communities all across the state of Minnesota, not just along the American Indian Cultural Corridor down there on Franklin Avenue. Uh, shout out to Dr. Stately, who comes on uh, with us every Monday. Um, NAC, I, I don't have... Uh, I could, I could go on and on about all the great work that they do. They not only take care of your health and, and your body, but also your mind and your spirit, which is also very, very important. Just before the break, we were mid-conversation with our uh, updates that we're so grateful for from Minnesota State Senator Mary Kunish. So we will continue the second part of her update right now. And I'm back. Senator Mary Kunish from Minnesota here. I was talking uh, about it being... Native American Heritage Month here, and I kind of got sided off on on all the good work we're doing around Indigenous education and addressing the the inequities that we have here in Minnesota. But one thing I also wanted to talk a little bit about is the fact that January, excuse me, not January, uh, November 7th was Election Day. And it was a big day for us here in Minnesota, as well as in other areas, um, other states. Um, And, 
you know, it's it's just so important that we all get out and we vote when we have the opportunity to vote, whether it's a school board or a city council or, you know, your state representative or your senator or your governor or for the president. Because while many of us think or many out there think that um, our vote doesn't count, it really, really, really does. And if it's one thing that um, our Native folks could do across the nation is to get together and really get behind good candidates. If you feel like the person who is representing you uh, in your community or in your state or in the nation is not doing a good job, is not looking out for your best interests, then it really is your responsibility. And it's your responsibility for those coming down, um, coming in the next generations, right? To make sure that we are putting people in there whose policies and whose dollars are being used to the best possible way um, for our Indigenous communities and all of those around us. Because we know when our communities thrive, all the other communities thrive as well. And I don't know how many of you know that it wasn't until 1924 with the passage of the Indian Citizenship Act that uh, Native Americans living on reservations finally got to be able to vote. In fact, um, many Native folks to this day don't realize that they can vote outside of their their tribal elections. So when the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924 passed, um, my mom, um, my mom's dad, uh, from the Standing Rock Nation could not vote. His wife could vote, but he couldn't vote. And, um, you know, that wasn't so long ago. And it took until 1948 for our Native uh, relatives in New Mexico and Arizona to actually um, go to court and get their right to vote. And my neighbor to the to the uh, west, North Dakota, they became the uh, North Dakota and Utah became some of the last states that were allowed on reservation uh, Native Americans to vote, and that wasn't until 1957 and 1958. So that wasn't so long ago, and uh, that it the, the fight for the right to vote didn't end then. And we all know that there is still. Uh, immense voter suppression laws that are keeping our Native Americans from voting and also seeking election uh, elected office themselves. I know that in Arizona, Native Americans couldn't even participate in voting until 1970. And that uh, that took the Supreme Court um, banning using literacy tests. So again, these kind of uh, actions against our indigenous people um, is, is, is still alive. I mean, even today, the right to vote continues to be challenged through um, all kinds of new laws and practices. And um, they intentionally target our Native American voters really um, with the, the intent of uh, discouraging and disenfranchising them um, from voting. And so I think it's so important that that we look at um, why our communities of, of color and our native communities uh, find it so difficult to vote. We know, and you can look at the statistics, that the turnout for Native Americans is actually the lowest in this country compared to any other group. And um, there's a lot of issues that contribute to that low turner, low voter turnout. There was um, a study done by the Native American Voting Rights Coalition that uh, found, and I don't think anybody, uh, any of us are going to be very surprised, that there is such a low level of trust in our government. There's a lack of information on how to vote, where to vote, when to vote, 
And uh, when we look at the reservations across the country, oftentimes our community members have to travel long, long distances to either register or to even vote. Um, and oftentimes the information that they're trying to access they aren't able to get on uh, on the internet because they don't have access to the internet. Uh, when folks come into town, sometimes we'll find that the polling places are in unwelcome spaces, such as the police department. And uh, we know that, that in many of these communities, the hostility that is shown towards our Native Americans are not going to, uh, are going to prevent the voters from coming into those places because um, they don't they don't trust those community members. There's intimidation and they put obstacles in the way, such as you have to have um, uh, a residential address, and if you don't have like a one one two two First Avenue North <clears throat> address, such as that, um, they won't allow uh, you to vote. And so it's so important that we make these changes to the voting process to really further the, <coughs> excuse me, the ability and remove the frustration of our Native, of, uh, uh, Native American votes. The voting that we do has such uh, an important um, consequence um, we have to make choices all the time about feeding our families, how we're going to expend our resources to ensure that our family stays housed, that we can get to work, that we can find a good paying job. And um, that when you vote and you vote for those that um, are going to support you, that is the power of your vote. It's, uh, you're going to look at, you know, um, uh, the poverty rate of our Native Americans is around 26.8%. And how are those that represent you helping to address those issues so that we can raise our, our wages, we raise our um, standard of living, and uh, be able to to create and build that generational wealth that so many of uh, our non-Native com uh, community members um, have. And so it's really important that we are playing a role in building good practices and policies that are going to eliminate that systemic dis um, discrimination. And I'm really proud to say that here in Minnesota, uh, the Department of Human Rights has a new law that will go into place January 1st, 2024. And it's aimed at bringing Minnesota one step closer to closing the gender and the racial pay gap in Minnesota. Because currently, Native women only earn 61 cents and Native men earn 70 cents for every dollar a white man earns. And this new law is going to prohibit all Minnesota employers from asking all prospective or current employees about their current or past um, pay. And if anybody does that here in Minnesota, we're going to ask them to contact, um, contact the Department of Human Rights and let them know because this is just unacceptable in any way, shape, or form. And uh, the new law is going to help close that gender and that racial pay gap. And uh, when you have um, are applying for a job, those employees are going to have to rely on your skills, your education, your certification, your license, and other qualifications, as well as the, the job market. And it's going to prohibit those employees for asking about or considering any of your past or current pay during um, that hiring process. So we wish you well. Um, until next week, take care, everybody. Wopila and Chi Miigwech. 
big Pina Gigi, Mary. Thank you so much. We always appreciate your updates on Native Roots Radio. Uh, next up, we have an encore segment with Justice Broken Rope, and he talks about uh, the Dakota Immersion School within the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. And then after that, we have a new Fun Fact Friday Sacred Animal segment with Wendy Pilot. Stay with us. Are you thinking about college? Consider checking out Minnesota Private Colleges. These 18 nonprofit institutions keep the focus on students with small classes and professors who will get to know you. You'll find students from all backgrounds, and no two colleges are alike. And when it comes to cost, they're more affordable than you think. Find the college that's right for you at mnprivatecolleges.org slash possible. mnprivatecolleges.org slash possible. Unveil the captivating world of native photography at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Their new exhibit, In Our Hands, Native Photography 1890 to Now, turns the camera around and puts native photographers in control, featuring hundreds of photographs captured by generations of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and Native Americans. You'll view the world through their lens, revealing the beauty and complexity of indigenous heritage. Don't miss this incredible experience. Visit In Our Hands at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, now through January 14th. For more info, visit artsmia.org. Hi, I'm Claudia with Minsure, Minnesota's official health insurance marketplace. With Minsure, you can compare health plans from multiple companies and get free help from a trusted expert. Whatever health plan you choose with Minsure, it's guaranteed to cover essential benefits so you can get the care you need. See if you qualify for discounts available only through Minsure. If you need quality, comprehensive health insurance, get started now at Minsure.org. Hi, this is Frank Brown, owner of Minuteman Press Uptown, Minnesota's only minority-owned union printing company. We have big news. We've moved to North Minneapolis. Why did you move? As a black business owner, I wanted to be part of the North Minneapolis community to provide jobs. Are there other reasons you moved there? We have bigger new equipment and outgrew the other location. What kind of new equipment do you have? We have new equipment that allows us to print quality signage and banners. We also have a new inkjet printer, printing larger sheets, improving production efficiencies. Is the new location easy to find? It's not only easy to find, it's more convenient with plenty of parking. We are now located on Washington Avenue North off I-94 and the Dowling exit. So do you still print everything? We print more than everything. We have over 175 Google reviews with a five-star rating. Call 612-870-0777 or visit mpuptown.com. That's mpuptown.com. We print everything. Think your company's safe? Your staff is working from home, right? As I speak, cyber criminals are mounting attacks across the country. Remember, when we're weakest, cyber criminals attack. Hi, Mark Sommerfeld from Rymark. The Rymark team is guiding our clients through these difficult times. In fact, demand has been so high, we created an easy-to-follow guide. It's yours free. Download our five steps to securely work from home now at rymarkit.com or call 651-328-8900 for a no-cost how-to discussion. This portion of the show is supported by Native American Community Development Institute, or NACTI, in Minneapolis. Hey, producer Haley, Chashapewangwainik with... Uh, with you now, I'm a descendant of the Ho-Chunk Nation in Wisconsin. If you're just tuning in, before the break, we had our first half of today's show with some new updates from our friend, Minnesota State Senator Mary Kunish, and Mary is a descendant of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. Right now, I want to introduce a best of segment that we did recently with Justice Broken Rope and Little Moments Count. Justice is a Wahopi language nest educator within the University of Minnesota Twin Cities and is Rosebud Lakota. Here is our interview with Justice on the Dakota Language Revitalization Program with our young ones at the University of Minnesota. Thanks for having me today, Robert, Haley. Right on. Hey, uh, tell us about the, the, the school and about uh, uh, what's going on there with the Language Nest and its mission and uh, talking about Dakota language. Yeah, so we started, last year was our pilot year. Um, I'm the assistant teacher uh, in a Dakota language immersion preschool classroom. So 
uh, in this classroom, for those who aren't familiar with the immersion settings, uh, we don't speak anything but Dakota. Uh, we have, right now we have two to five-year-olds. We have 11 students enrolled in the class. Uh, last year we started with five, so we jumped up quite a bit. Um, the lead teacher in the classroom is Brenda Toscano whiteface She's the first speaker, um, which we're really grateful to have. And um, yeah, we're going strong. We're about a year, not quite a year and a half into it, but enrollments increased and um, seeing great results from the kids. Yeah, it's exciting because uh, the young ones can uh, uh, learn quicker than uh, us old ones. And the revitalization is so, so important to keep uh, us being natives in the next generations to come. So I, I just applaud what you're doing. I know it's huge all over Turtle Island with uh, tribes really trying to pick it up because I feel like we've lost a couple generations, my generation and the generation before with boarding schools and all these things that uh, have really tried to erase us. So I just applaud, applaud you and uh, you working with these young ones. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same for me where I only grew up with a handful of my language. I'm Lakota from Rosebud. And so we had a few words here and there in the house, but I didn't have an opportunity like this when I was a young one. And so to be a part of this now is is a really big thing and a really moving thing and really special in so many ways. Yeah, we can't talk about it enough. And I think, uh, I believe, you know, the last 10, 15 years, especially our, our young ones and our teens and people maybe your age are really stepping up to the plate. And that's been exciting for me to, to watch and see and experience too secondhand because we've lost our language. I mean, uh, our family, but yet we as Ho-Chunks, I believe we're down to 60 uh, intimate speakers. And that's that's a red alert. That's We need to, to, to pull to pull this out. So talk to, uh, talk to us a little bit about, uh, how do you engage the family too? not only the young ones, but the, they have to bring that home with them too. Yeah. You said it right there. Um, you know, when you're at school for eight hours a day, obviously we're staying in the language, everything's going down in that manner, but you know, we don't have the kids those other 16 hours, obviously. And with the exception of two families, uh, none of the other families uh, speak Dakota as a first language at home uh, with their children or rest of their family. And so something um, in, in language revitalization, particularly indigenous language revitalization, uh, the Maori and the Hawaiians are really the ones who um, put forth these really good models. Uh, I think roughly like 20 to 30 years ago, they were kind of figuring out what worked, what didn't work. And... Um, kind of hammered out the methods that need to happen in this sort of work. And uh, something that we pulled from that and what we learned from them was that they had parent education classes. And so when our pilot year started last year, that would just be on a Wednesday evening uh, during pickup, uh, when the families would come to pick up their kids, uh, the parents would come over and we would ha have a class for them where we would kind of review what we were doing with the kids in class. And so they could bring some of that language home. You know, how do you say, oh, like, put on your coat, you know, like, brush your teeth, things like that, that um, they're just simple phrases a lot of the time. And for our language, it's it's one word sometimes. Um, right. And so, you know, things that you can just embrace at home really quickly uh, to get more language acquisition there as well is really vital. And so hopefully we get to a point where we can have more of those parent classes. And there are other Dakota language opportunities in the Twin Cities, obviously. But um, yeah, that's kind of one of the big components of this is making sure the parents are able to um, embrace the language and use it outside of the classroom with their kids. Yeah, it is really important. So the uh, the nest enrolls Dakota families and their uh, those affiliated with the University of Minnesota community, uh, but it also aims to enroll families committed to language revitalization, uh, regardless regardless of financial resources. How do you ensure in, uh, that everyone can be uh, and have access to this? Yeah, so uh, right now our cap is at 12 students. Um, we have 11 currently. Uh, three of those kids are belong to the same, they're siblings. So we have eight different families and only one of them is non-Dakota or Lakota. And so 
Uh, we're not at cap yet, but obviously our priority is to give Dakota and Lakota families or to give those families priority in this program. And then beyond that, we have scholarships available um, for tuition at the school. And so we've done our best to make it accessible for everyone. And I think based off last year, our pilot year starting with only four families um, and jumping now to eight, things have been going pretty strong in that regard. Yes, there is a, a, a revitalization and uh, it's great. I think that we're talking about this and and getting the the word out. Haley, I, I noticed that you're listening intently. Do you have any have any questions? Uh, because uh, this is a, a family affair here. Yeah, well, I just want to say language is so hard to learn, especially as the older you get. And I definitely had my fair share of struggle with it. But so uh, just a big Pina Gigi, thank you for teaching these young ones uh, their language, especially uh, their cultural language. And yeah, I'm happy to see this uh, language program take off a bit more at the U of M. I, I didn't know about this before, so I'm really excited. And, you know, Robert and I are both alumni from the U of M. So uh, we we really support this program and all the great work that that's going on over there. Oh, Pidamia. Right on. I, 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 the high school I taught at uh, taught Ojibwe and um, Lakota Dakota, um, but I like a, a good hoka hey every once in a while. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Hey, right on. Yeah. Uh, so, it, so when you t can you talk a little bit about your teaching? So, if they're with young ones, is there games involved? Is there is there is fun things? How how do you uh, break the ice and and it's it's easier I imagine that it's an emergent school where everybody has to speak the language. Yeah, and so for me personally, it was kind of uh, I had just graduated from the U um, and studied Dakota there and went to like programs around the city. And so when the school popped up, the job was offered to me. And I had had a little bit of experience with early childhood, but had mostly taught adults. And so um, it was kind of nice going into this and uh, having a lot of really good mentors. Brenda, the teacher here, um, she, she's been teaching early childhood for a long time. Sheila Williams-Ridge, one of the directors here at the school. Uh, for me personally, they really helped me engage uh, with children in a meaningful way in ways that I could understand and then apply kind of this uh, emergent curriculum and assisting with language acquisition. And so some of the things we do, I think you would see in a conventional preschool classroom, uh, you know, reading stories, uh, games, songs, a lot of that. Um, but then, you know, constantly maintaining uh, us ourselves in the language, just making certain that we're not breaking it. Um, but then also a focus at this school uh, is more of a nature-based curriculum. So we spend the majority of our day outside, uh, and we strive to do that throughout the whole year. Um, and that, that nature-based curriculum is really in line with uh, our indigenous perspectives, too, in the ways that we want to talk about the world around us and our relatives and nature and kind of embracing those ideas and then, you know, making sure that these kids are understanding that in a, in a good and safe space where they feel comfortable and then hearing it in the language as well. And so, yeah, it is, it is a lot of um, things that you'd imagine you would do with two to five year olds. Um, but again, all in the language and then, you know, striving to kind of just like be outside as much as possible and see what they're interested in and the things that they want to talk about and how we can talk about it in the language. You know, I'd like to hear some of the obstacles. One of the things I was thinking as you were talking is uh, being a former teacher, it was 10 months with the kids and then we wouldn't see them in the summer. But that's got to be hard for uh, a language learner. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, regarding obstacles, I mean, that's a huge one. Uh, there are things you can do over the summer. Um, but that being said, not a lot of them are catered towards early childhood most of the time. They're more towards people around our ages. And so uh, finding ways that kids can, you know, there's an organization, Dakota Yapio Kodakichie, which is DIO, that's based out of the uh, Twin Cities that organizes a lot of camps. Um, and those are where kids can go, kind of hear languages. I've worked there, Brenda's worked there, other Dakota teachers work there from time to time. And so 
um, there are opportunities, but yeah, it is, it is definitely a challenge. And that's kind of the key thing where it's like, we want to set these parents up to be able to speak more at home and more consistently. And we can see when that happens too. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, that's definitely an obstacle. Um, another one that I think is pretty well known across, uh, indigenous language revitalization in general is that we need more speakers, more learners, um, and more of those willing to be teachers. Uh, when you start learning your tribe's language, especially as a young person, there's an inherent pressure where everyone's like, well, are you going to go teach it? And so I think a lot of people get intimidated. Um, and, you know, maybe that's not their priority at that time or that that's not what they want to do. And that's OK. But uh, really, we just need more people, you know, learning as much as they can. Um, but yeah, it's uh, there are certainly challenges. And I, you know, I think Ho-Chunk, Ojibwe, uh, all the other groups in this area, can that resonates with them as well. If you want to hear more of Justice on Native Brits Radio, make sure to tune in to next Thursday's episode where we welcome him back, but this time to talk the universal language, which we call music, specifically all Native music and all on vinyl. Speaking of music, I'm actually going to sign off and pass things back to Patrick here at the Mothership, which is the am 950 station i'm heading out to the stevie nicks and billy joel concert so have a great weekend everyone up next is a new sacred animals fun fact friday with robert and wendy pilot all the way from new york stay with us back to school season is here And while this is an exciting time for parents, kids, and educators, let's not forget how far we've come in our battle against COVID-19. We're in a better place, but COVID-19 is still here, and we need to continue to help protect our communities. With the flurry of new schedules and classrooms, let's not overlook the fundamentals of staying safe. Wash your hands regularly and watch for any symptoms like fever, chills, a cough, or shortness of breath. Should you or someone you know have COVID-19 symptoms, stay home and get tested. Find more tips on continuing to be safe at health.state.mn.us. Let's have this back-to-school season be a time of renewed commitment to our collective health and brighter future for our Native communities. Again, find more tips on continuing to be safe at health.state.mn.us. This message is brought to you in partnership with the Minnesota Department of Health. Minnesota has the only original wolf population in the continental United States. And 80% of Minnesotans believe the wolf should be protected. Howling for Wolves is asking Minnesotans to respect our true wildlife manager, the wolf. Their survival is critical to our ecosystems, our communities, and even our economy. As highly intelligent animals with strong social bonds, Minnesota wolves deserve to be protected and admired. Learn more at howlingforwolves.org. Let's Let's live and and let howl. JNS Bean Factory is a native-owned, community-supported, cozy, artsy coffee shop which offers roasted on-site beans, live music, and baked goods. Relax in the beautiful outside patio. City Pages writes, voted top 10 coffee shops. Tucked into a quiet corner of St. Paul's Highland Park neighborhood, this coffee shop roasts beans on-site from the best coffee-growing countries in the world. Located at 1518 Randolph Avenue, St. Paul. The good stuff. Hey, welcome back to Native Ritz Radio Presents. I'm awake and I'm your host, Robert Pilot. This portion of the show is brought to you by Howling for Wolves, protecting wolves for future generations. Oh. Oh. Hey, it's Fun Pack Friday and uh, Wendy loves talking about her sacred animals and we love hearing it. I've learned so much over the years, Wendy. So take it away. Yes. Hi, everybody. My name is Hanaji Hihani. That means cares for them. I was given that name by my Dega Curtis. Curtis goes by Mashke Hanajinga, which means walks on white clouds. I'm a humane policy volunteer leader for the Humane Society of the United States, and I work on animal issues at the local and state level. And it's always my pleasure to do that. Robert, we were in Manhattan today. And uh, a very friendly little squirrel came right up to me and he kind of startled me because I was like, he got really like uncomfortably close to me. But I just told him, I don't have anything for you, buddy. And he walked away. But I was, 
I was uh, thinking about squirrels that live in Manhattan, right? Or how they live in Manhattan. And the majority of squirrels in New York are your normal, everyday, eastern gray squirrels. And those are the ones that we see, you know, everywhere. And we see them in St. Paul also. Yeah. The southern flying squirrel is one of the four squirrel uh, species that can be found in New York City. The other three are um, the eastern gray squirrel, and then there's another squirrel also. I'll talk about that in just a minute. But um, are there squirrels in Manhattan? And we already know that there are. And if you spend any time in New York City and in the park, chances are you have uh, spotted one of the gray squirrels. Uh, These tree-dwelling animals have become something of an unofficial mascot for the city's parks by nature of their visibility. Um, There's also another one. I've never heard of this. And I've... You know, I've, I mean, I've lived on Long Island my whole adult life and lived in uh, Minnesota for how long now, Robert? 24 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are the big squirrels in New York? And I think I know what you're going to say. The rats. <laughs> but it's not the rats. A type of marmot, the woodchuck, is the New York's largest member of the squirrel family with an adult woodchuck weighing as much as 12 pounds though most average around seven pounds it has a chunky body which keeps low to the ground i never knew 12 pounds yeah could you imagine that's bigger than our dog i know wanda's only nine pounds so, but it said here the most average about seven pounds, and it, and it has a chunky body which keeps low to the ground. And here's another thing: are black squirrels in New York City? Hmm. So black fur for both species of squirrels is rare and occurs at a rate of less than one percent. It has been suggested that only one in ten thousand eastern gray squirrels are a black morph. Hmm. Yeah. Now we have um, squirrels are territorial. So there's a couple of streets like when we're home walking Wanda that I know uh, have black squirrels living down them. And and there's one particular street where I'll say, Wanda, come on, let's go see the black squirrel. (laughs) And most of the time we'll see a couple of black squirrels there. They're more rare than white, I heard. Oh, that's a good question. Maybe maybe that will tell me years ago. On yeah. the sacred animal portion. Yeah. <laughs> Do flying squirrels live in New York City? New York has an overlap of northern and southern flying squirrels, and they're actually in our parks feeding on ac- acorns and fungi. I was a fun guy in high school. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the... What is the most common squirrel in New York? And here it says again, the eastern gray squirrel. And they can grow 9 to 12 inches in length and reach 2 pounds upon sexual maturity. Despite their name, they come in a variety of colors and will often display a mix of gray, brown, black, and cinnamon fur. Their long hair, bushy tails can grow to be um, roughly as long as their bodies. Um, okay, this is a, f- a fun question. How long do New York City squirrels live? Seven years. Well, it's if they might get shot. If they, shot? You know, by a gun. By a random gun. Really? Okay, so long-lived uh, for rodent squirrels average three to five years old, but can live up to eight to ten years in the wild. Uh, which is several times longer than the usual year or two for most smaller rodents. When most New Yorkers think of squirrels, this is the species they picture. Mm. Yeah, so is that enough? Yeah, so what do New York City squirrels eat? What do you think they eat? Uh, McDonald's, Mm. scraps, food. They're omnivorous, scatterer, hoarder, the gray... Eastern gray squirrels' days are spent foraging, eating, and catching acorns and other nuts. Oh, okay. Yeah, it also gnashes on fruits, berries, insects, corn, weak tree bark, fungi, uh, carrion, 
seeds, flower, and tree buds, and sometimes birds' eggs and fledglings. Oh, Ooh, wow. I don't know about that. Many of which are plentiful in Central Park. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that's it. We have lots of squirrels in New York City. And I have another, um, a bit of fun facts that uh, we were tr talking about the other day. And this is from, let's see here, 50 Strange and Fascinating Facts About Animals. <laughs> and this is written by Ellen Strumnitz. Uh, some of these we already talked about, but we could always uh, review them, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the average dog is about as smart as a two-year-old child. Ours is smarter. <laughs> that explains a lot uh, about both canines and toddlers. <laughs> you think Wanda's smarter than a two-year-old? Emotionally. Emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> She's emotionally mature. Unlike most uh, every other mammal, cats can't taste sweetness. Oh. Yeah, I think we talked about yeah. this. They're also uh, often lactose intolerant, so you might as well lick your own ice cream bowl clean and don't give them any milk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know the toothy grins of chimps you see on TV shows? Yeah. Okay. Lancelot Link, the secret chimp. Yeah, that does not, it doesn't mean what you think. That expression signals fear or anxiety in the chimp world. Mm. Yeah, they make a grunting sound when they're happy. But, you know, we're um, smiling people and we smile with our teeth. So <laughs> when people see a chimp doing that, they think that, you know, they're happy too. Wow. Yeah. Let's see. Okay, so humans, we sweat all over our bodies, but dogs only sweat on the pads of their feet. Not in their mouth when they're panting? Yeah, no. And I think that's that. how they keep cool, but they sweat. Mm. on the pads of their feet. So if your dog is really hot, cool off their paws. Wrap them in cool, like wet cloth or paper towel or something like that. Wow. Cats have over 20 muscles to control their ears and can rotate them 180 degrees. No wonder their sense of hearing is so amazing. What? <laughs> Bottled nose dolphins swim up to 18 miles an hour. Mm. Most humans are lucky to swim four miles per hour. Right. I mean... I, I didn't even know a human could swim four miles an hour. I just watched that movie, what was it called, Mayard, mm. on Netflix, about the 64-year-old woman who swam from Cuba to Key West. It was really fantastic. You should give it a try. Yeah, it. definitely. Hey, we got about 30 seconds here. Elephants have a specific warning call that means human. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they, they should. They especially should. with all those the poachers. poachers. Exactly. I know. Yeah. Dogs only see in yellow, blue, and gray. So do your pup a favor and buy a Frisbee in one of those colors so he can e more easily find it uh, and like it and have fun at the park. So yellow, blue, or gray. Wow, let's remember. Let's remember that one. Hey, Peeny Geeky Wendy, everyone have a great weekend. You've been listening to Native Roots Radio Presents. I'm awake. We'll see you next week. We're still here. We are the seventh generation. Free Leonard Peltier. Now. <laughs>